Welcome to Profiles, WFIU's program that introduces visiting artists, scholars, and musicians to the WFIU listening area. Our guest today is independent filmmaker John Sales. He funded his first movie, Return of the Sea Caucus 7, with $30,000 of his own money in 1980, and now almost 25 movie projects later, he's still going strong. Thanks for being here today. Nice to be here. Well, let's go ahead and talk about your new movie then. It's uh, it's Amigo. Right. And uh, I also self-funded that, <laughs> but not for only $30,000. Amigo set in, in 1900 on the island of Luzon in the Philippines during the Philippine-American War. Um, and the Amigo of the title is uh, the Cabeza de Barrio, the, the mayor of this little village that's been garrisoned by American troops. And uh, he's expected to kind of do their bidding and keep his people under control while a war is raging around them. At the same time that the head of the Filipino guerrillas in the area is his brother, who is expecting him to collaborate with them. So it's it's kind of a classic, you know, story about somebody caught in a crossfire, you know, between a rock and a hard place. And you did the filming for that in the Philippines. Yeah, we shot in the in uh, on the island of Bohol in the Visayas in the Philippines, um, and did the the editing and post production there as well. So it's it's you know Filipino crew about half the cast is Filipino. So there's you know they have a real film industry over there and a lot of wonderful actors and and crew people, a lot of talent. So um, it's one of the reasons that it was possible for a basically low-to-no-budget filmmaker like myself to make a period war movie. Well, and you did a blog of your experience in the Philippines, which is pretty cool. That's online. Mm -hmm. So you can check out your adventures. Amigothemovie.com. I think it used to be barriothemovie.com, but we changed the the title of the movie. So you self-funded this. Mm -hmm. You've self-funded any number of other movies. What on earth do you have to do (laughs) to get a big company to pay for a movie. You know, it is a business and they they have to think, oh, we have a good chance of making our money back on this. And generally that's either you're working in a genre that they think is hot at the moment, you're working with an actor who you th- they think everybody in the world wants to see at the moment, or you've just made them hundreds of millions of dollars. Other than that, you're you kind it's kind of stand in line. I think I we've made Three of the 17 features that we've made had any studio money in them. And the rest, you know, at least half of those were financed by independent financiers, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. And then uh, a couple were financed by uh, back in the days when video was new, selling the video rights first and then, you know, looking for a feature distributor. And then I think four or five of them were just money I've made as a screenwriter for hire. It's amazing. Let's go back to talking about um, how you choose topics for your movies. When you look at the list of films you've made, the, the topics are really all over the map. So we have this one about the Philippine-American War. Mate Juan is about a coal miner worker's strike. Honey Dripper is about a blues club. So how do you go about picking what you make a film about? Is it just your interest? Yeah, I think interest is is the central thing. You know, generally, I'm interested in learning more as I'm telling a story. So usually the things that I either write a book about or, or make a movie about are subject matters or areas that I know enough about to be intrigued, but not enough to, to not want to dig in a little further. And, and an awful lot of that is this very basic thing of if people are acting like this, what can possibly be going on in their minds? And, and whether that's a period movie or a contemporary movie, I'm interested in people's worldviews and how they come by those worldviews and how when you put them in, a, in some kind of situation of conflict, those worldviews are very often what's colliding, not just, oh, I want this and you can't have that. So a lot of my movies have people who don't speak the same language, sometimes literally, um, and I'll I'll use subtitles if I have to. I'm not above that. Um, if that's what you know, part of what makes the story work. But also sometimes it's people who don't speak the same language, in in a more metaphorical sense, in that their worldviews are so differently different that they they really are are not even on the same page when they start to confront with each other. 
um, whether it's a class difference, a race difference or whatever, um, they're really – when they're trying to work things out, they're coming from such different places that it's almost impossible for them to have some kind of peaceful solution. Hearing you talk about this, it sounds like it would be – every single movie that you make would be a learning experience for you because it doesn't sound like you're necessarily making movies so much from your own personal experience as seeking out interesting topics in other people's personal experiences. Would that be a good way to describe it? Yeah, certainly uh, I'd say of the movies I've made, uh, Baby It's You and City of Hope are the the closest to my own experience in, in terms of background and they're set in eastern urban cities. And But whenever you write characters – Generally, you're not going to have a whole bunch of people who are even in the same category that you are. So you're you're writing men and women, old people and young people, you know, people of different races, religions, classes, um, and you've got to think your way into their head. That takes some imagination and some research, um, and sometimes the research is just listening whether it's reading things that they've written or talking to the people or just paying attention to what's going on in the world. And sometimes it takes some imagination, which is a lot of what actors do. Um, actors will often be given a part and you know, maybe it's Restoration England or whatever and the culture may seem strange to them and some of the rules and they can read about that. But at some point they just have to say, OK, this is a human being. How can I – take the part of me that's just a human being and put myself in this person's skin and try to to inhabit this person and understand as a human being coming from where they're coming from, why they're reacting the way they are. And you have firsthand experience doing that because you're also an actor. So we'll, we'll talk yeah, about that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I find acting um, one of the best backgrounds that I've had and things that I continue to get to do every once in a while for writing. In that it it makes you think about point of view. Uh, it makes you think your way into people. And one of the things that, a, that, that an actor always has to do is walk into a situation and say, what would my character care about or notice in this room, in this situation, in this dynamic? I once got to uh, be in two different productions of of Mice and Men. And the first one I played Candy, who's this old guy who in the days before Social Security is worried that he's going to get fired and literally be starving on the street. In the next production, I got to play uh, Lenny, who's the large retarded guy who, you know, he's interested in food and his pet mouse and and very little else. And, you know... um, You walk into the same bunkhouse, the same words are going to be said, the same dynamic as in the play. But as those two different characters, there's things as one character that you don't even hear because they just – they're just not on your radar. And then you come in as the other character and all of a sudden it's a totally different play. Um, It's a totally different situation. The things that you care about that are going to worry you, that prick your ears up are going to be totally different even though everything else is the same about it. The set usually is almost exactly the same no matter what production of it. You know, it's the bunkhouse. That's I think a really, really good background for any writer. Even if you can't act is to take some acting classes to try to act and, and learn that way of thinking that an actor has to do to really inhabit a character. As a director, you help your actors too because I I read something that said you write a biography for the characters Mm -hmm. so that the actors can study it. Why do that? Well, some of it is that um, you know actors like nature abhor a vacuum, and if you don't give them this stuff, they're going to invent it. And I don't want to end up on the you know set with some actor saying, you know, I can't really say that line because you know my uncle beat me when I was five years old. But some of it is really the script is going to take place in an hour and a half or two hours, but it's often only a snapshot like Amigo is of a much bigger situation. So a lot of what I write in the biography, if it's just background, is how did you get here? Where did you come from? You know, what are the things that are not spelled out that I'd like you to know or that would be helpful for you to know? In the case of Amigo with the American soldiers, it was things like, how long have you been in the service? Have you ever been in combat before? You know, one of the characters um, is very new to the 12th Infantry and wasn't with them during the Cuban part of the Spanish-American War. So he's never run up a hill with a lot of people shooting at him. 
Another one was in the volunteers and has stayed by behind in the Philippines to join the regulars. But he's not a career officer, even though he's a lieutenant. You know, he's somebody who was an architect. Those are the kind of things that actors find useful. Um, and sometimes they even take something that I've given them and take it to a place that I couldn't have imagined. Surely actors along the way have worked with you on your concept of the character and that they've brought something to it or perhaps you've had some arguments with actors about what they've wanted to do. What I try to do is have all those before we get to the set um, just because uh, I'm shooting feature films in four to eight weeks. You know, I've I've done, you know, pretty – pretty long involved movies with only five weeks to shoot, which means that you can't have too many philosophical debates on the set. So what you do is you send uh, a biography to him beforehand, you know, call me up, let's talk about this. If there's any lines that you have trouble with or don't know if you would say it that way or your guy would say it that way, let's talk about them beforehand. So we, we tend to work that out beforehand. You know, I, I say to the actors, look, don't paraphrase. This is written the way it's written for a reason. You know, ask me about it before. And, you know, I'd say I change maybe one line per movie after we've started shooting. And usually it's just, you know, moving some words around because it's a bit of a tongue twister or whatever. Occasionally, if it's somebody speaking in another language, I'll make sure they understand what I'm speaking. And if they speak that language as a first language, I'll have them do the translating. You know, and then other times I'll have somebody do the translating because it's also period or there's something else special about it that you need a linguist to do. Well, let's go ahead and listen to some music now. So we're going to play a selection here from the movie Honey Dripper. So much music mm -hmm. in this movie. So much great, great music. Are you a blues fan, first of all? Yeah, and this, this um, you know, movie Honey Dripper it takes place in 1950 in the Deep South. And it's at this moment when... It really, rhythm and blues as the, you know, the kind of main thing that people were doing had only about five years front and center before rock and roll took it over. And it had evolved out of blues and big band and all these other things. But there was a thing called rhythm and blues and it had its own stars. Uh, Ruth Brown, who was originally going to be in the movie before she passed away, uh, Louis Jordan, people like that. And it's a very distinctive kind of music. And one of the things that I really noticed is that there was uh, this little battle at the very beginning of uh, rock and roll that you could have personalized by saying it was between Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. And the Chuck Berries of the world won, and the piano and the saxophone kind of disappeared from rock and roll for many, many, many years when they'd been the mainstays and the front and center things of rhythm and blues, and the guitar had been before it really got electrified way in the background. Music tends to play important roles in movies, but with this movie in particular, the music really feels almost like an additional character just because it's it's in there so much and it's so powerful. So specifically as a director, how did you think about planning the music for Honey Dripper? Yeah, well, one of the things I, we were talking about the biographies before, uh, Danny Glover plays the lead character in this, um, Tyrone Purvis, and his biography was basically his musical biography. So uh, being a guy in 1950 who's 50, um, he goes through incredible stuff. So I have him in New Orleans in 1920. Um, you know, Danny listened to a lot of music to prepare for the character, you know, made himself a tape. I sent him some stuff. So really, in a way, if you follow the music, there's a story there of a, a music that starts, you know, uh, in the South. Um, blues come to New Orleans they start getting syncopated, messed around with. Um, it turns into a, a very distinctive New Orleans style of jazz, um, which then starts to spread around the rest of the country. And then people who hear that come up with their own regional variations, and that starts fe feeding into something you know, called rhythm and blues. In 1921, uh, you start to have radio. So um, for players, you don't have to see the person play. If you're a guitar player, you know, you can you can hear him play. Um, so there's a lot of guys who say, well, I want to play like this guy, and they learn how to play exactly like him. And then they see him 20 years later in person. They say, he fingers the guitar totally different than I do. I came up with a totally different way to get the same sound. 
Um, so all of a sudden, you, you you know you expand the ability of music to to be fusion music. The the number of influences. Um, there was a very very close um, kind of uh, and partly because of the record labels wanting to double their success or increase their success, kind of brother-sister relationship between rhythm and blues and country music at the beginning. A lot of labels did both, and the minute they had a hit on one side, they'd do a country version of it or a a rhythm and blues um, version of it. So for me, it all begins with talking with my composer, Mason Daring. We talk about the musical vocabulary of the, the movie, and in the case of Honey Dripper, it was, well, we're going to have some blues roots in it. Keb Mo is in it, playing a guy from kind of the the wicked past of this character Danny Glover plays. And we're going to have some rhythm and blues in it. Um, we're going to hear a little big band, you know, coming out of some other things. Uh, it's a low-budget movie, so we can't actually see a big band, which is why the big bands died. Um, and then we're going to have that very, very early rock and roll, single coil, electrified guitar, which has a very distinctive sound that fattened up two or three years later. You know, 1950, the electric bass isn't there yet, so guys are still carrying that great big stand-up bass around, but the electric guitar is really stepping out and really changing things, you know, very, very rapidly. So a lot of it was, okay, we should be able to, if we put them in order, tell a story just with the music. You know, and there's the music that our guys are going to play live. There's the music that we're going to hear coming out of car radios and jukeboxes and things like that. And then there's the scored music, which is what we're going to create. And let's talk about the vocabulary for that. What are the instruments that we're going to play in that? How are we going to play them? Whitfield singing The Music Keeps Rolling On, written by Mason Daring. And our guest today on WFIU's Profiles, John Sales. That's right. You are credited with also having written this song. Do you consider yourself a musician? No. Uh, I, I've written lyrics for a lot of songs in our movies. Occasionally, I'll even come up with a melody like I did in the case of, of that song. Um, but generally, they're very generic and they're meant to be very generic. So I've written some gospel songs for things and uh, some country western stuff or whatever. Besides being fun, it saves us a lot of money um, not having to buy the rights. And um, Mason being a composer, he can, you know, I can give him a, a, a kind of sketchy idea of something and uh, he can turn it into music. And then, you know, that that's that extra thing is if you get the right players and singers to do it, once again, it, it steps up to another level, um, and it actually sounds like a song. <laughs> yeah. Did I hear you correctly that you wrote the melody for uh, The Music Keeps Rolling On? Yeah. I didn't write the bridge, and I and I Mason improved the melody, but every once in a while, I'll have a very, very basic melody, you know. I'm amazed at people who can just come up with, you know, uh, melodies. I, I've uh, been working on a thing that involves Carol King recently. I don't know where she got them. Like, everybody doesn't know where they get something like that. It just came out of her somewhere, and uh, they're very original. I think people who um, do anything creative are in awe of people who do creative things in fields that they have no talent in or very little talent in. I want to talk about the quote that's at the top of your website. It says, quote, it makes no sense for film workers to seize the means of production unless they also seize the means of distribution and exhibition. 
and get a good cut of the ancillaries, unquote. Talk me through why you believe that. Yeah, it's still in italics because it hasn't happened. But um, basically what what's happened more and more in the whatever, if you – I won't even call it the independent movie business, the independent movie world because there's not much, much business left to it. It's getting more and more possible for somebody to just make a movie. When I made a movie in 1978 with Return of the Sakaka 7, I didn't know anybody in the movie business. We were kind of inventing the wheel um, that had already been invented. You know, I, I There were all kinds of things that if I'd gone to film school for one week, I would have known and would have saved me a little time. Probably two weeks is all I needed at <laughs> film school, but that, it would have helped a little. But now there are... So many schools have a film department that has a production part of it. There are so many books about it. Digital technology has made the ability to get something, a picture with sound up on a screen, so much more um, accessible to anybody than it used to be. That you know, there's there's people in junior high school making watchable movies. So where's the bottleneck? The bottleneck is getting people to see it, is in distribution and exhibition. And uh, technologically, we're getting closer to that statement. I think that people now can make a movie. They can put it on YouTube uh, and somebody will see it. What won't happen is they won't get paid anything back. So if they're working with union workers, you know, Screen Actors Guild actors or IA crew people or even trying to raise money to make their second film, even if there's nobody in a union in it, you know, I always say, you know, buy your second movie. You either have to pay people something or get new friends. If you can't make any money back at all on the movie, how can you ask a, an investor, oh, you saw my movie it made no money. Why don't you invest in my next one? You know, um, or even use your own money because you'll probably have spent it all on your, your first movie, um, which is kind of what happens to us every third or fourth movie. We're just tapped out, and I, I end up, you know, writing a lot more screen price for people. It's starting to happen in the music business a little bit. Um, they're they're different enough that it's not necessarily possible to happen in in the movie business, but. Um, the idea that you don't necessarily have to go through that bottleneck of distribution of the limited number of companies who are even interested in off-Hollywood movies. And eventually, there's only so many screens that will show those movies um, that pay anything at all. And then there's only 52 weeks in the year. Sundance Film Festival regularly gets 2,500 2, feature films submitted every year. That's just... Americans making their first or second film. Uh, so you, you put in international films. There's thousands of films every year chasing that finite number of screens and weeks in the year. So I think some of it is, okay, um, don't think of yourself as an industrial worker who is just an employee of a larger industry. You almost have to think of yourself as, I'm going to open my own restaurant. You know, and people are going to come through. And if I want to change the menu, I'm going to change the menu. But people pay me directly. It doesn't go through somebody else. Some musicians are able to do that now. Now they have to tour, um, and it's not possible for filmmakers to tour and, and with their movies and also make another movie at the same time. It doesn't bring in the same. You know, you don't really with an independent film get to sell the T-shirts that you do if you have a hot rock band. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily bad that musicians now have to tour if they're going to make a living. Um, you know, there were excesses in the in the past that had nothing to do with, you know, really the 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 act of making the music and people appreciating it. With movies, it's a little different, and you know, I'm I'm hoping that in the next ten years or so, people will find a way that there will be an agreement between the audience and the filmmakers that, okay, uh, we're not dealing with a giant corporation here. Uh, this isn't like ripping off the phone company. Uh, we're going to download your movie and we're going to pay you something from it. And there's not going to be a middleman. You know, that, that would be great. And that the end use of that download will be on a nice screen. With some, you know, it won't necessarily be in. You know, there will still be showings in in darkened theaters with a bunch of other people sitting there. But that it's already not the um, 
primary way that studios make their money back. They're making more than than 50% of their money back in ancillaries, um, which is, is used after the theatrical run of the movie. We're sitting here on the campus of Indiana University, so I'm a little nervous about asking you this question. But after hearing you explain all that, do you think film schools are unnecessary? School in general? You you really have to be a consumer about school in general. A lot of people go to college because they don't know what to do with the next four years of their life. If there's a war you don't want to get drafted into, that can be you know, one reason to go to, to college. If there's a specific um, thing that you've always wanted to look into and that college has that thing, those professors, those books, that study center, that's a great reason to go to college. If there's a trade that you have to get a degree to practice that trade, you know, more and more, I think, um, as, you know, we have more people in the world than there are jobs for. You know, no politician wants to say this, but college degree becomes a way for the people who are hiring to know that, okay, only 80 people are going to show up on on my doorstep this morning applying for this job instead of 8,000. Now, there may be some very qualified people among those people who don't have the degree, but if I can assume that there's a couple good candidates in that 80, why not just eliminate, you know, 7,000 or more people that I don't have to talk to by saying you have to have this degree to even knock on my door? So I'm not even just talking about film school. You know, certainly if there were five good film schools, there would probably, you know, uh, the graduates of those could take every job that's going to become available in the movie industry, you know, in the next five years. Um, There are more than that. So, you know, but how many people who get a literature degree are necessarily going to end up teaching literature or writing books? So maybe what that degree is about is, okay, here's an area that for four years, it was so much fun. I got to look into this thing and it's something that I'll continue to in my free time, you know, look into and I'll have a better appreciation of it in the rest of my life. So I think you really have to look at the film school and and, and look honestly at how directed you are. You know, in some cases, uh, kids sign up for film school just because, oh, I like to watch movies and it seems like a gut and it's easy or whatever. In other cases, they're much more directed. Um, and then you have to say, okay, is my interest in films academic? There are some places that specialize in that. Is it if, is it so technical that I should really go to a place that's known for um, having a great school for cinematographers? Is it about writing? There are some schools that have much better screenwriting. You know, So I think you have to really be a consumer about that. The tough thing is when you're 18 years old, you know, unless you're very, very, very directed, quite honestly, uh, I have a friend who, who runs the graduate program at NYU. Some of his favorite students are people who didn't go to undergraduate film school, who went off and had lives They were in the Marines. They were married. They had other jobs. And they come back and they say, well, I've got all this stuff I want to talk about and I'd like to do it in film. And then film school becomes how they, they, you know, kind of focus on that and learn some some craft and some other things that they may. So undergraduate film school I think can be great. The people I know who have benefited the most, who I know who are working in the movie business from film school are people who – developed a cadre of other students who they really kind of came – they may not be working together today, but for the first five years out of school, they really helped each other out. Okay, I'll be the key grip on your film if you'll be the DP on my film or my, you know, whatever. And, and, you know, I I think there are some people who are still working together who met in film school and, and felt like, okay, we want to make the same kind of stuff. We don't necessarily have the same kind of skills or talent, so maybe you know, you'll be the writer and I'll be the director or whatever. Um, so I do I, I do think that sometimes there is that alchemy that happens when people get together to study something together where, you know, comedy groups come out of, you know, theater departments and stuff like that or, or even fraternities sometime, you know, and, and there is that thing of just meeting people and bouncing your ideas and energy off them. You said earlier that you 
wish you'd gone to film school for two weeks or probably mm-hmm. two weeks at film school would have really helped you out. Uh, what do you think you would have learned in that two weeks? Oh, for instance, I would have learned uh, what edge coding was, uh, edge numbering was in film so that when I, I started to edit my first movie, I invented the process that already existed. <laughs> and I, I was – for about a half a day, I was writing little signs on – because the sound and picture art were separate in editing in those days and film editing. Uh, you had to keep them in sync after the, you know, the, the clapper. And so I said, geez, after – if I ever cut that clapper off, I'm going to get lost and it's going to be a couple frames out of sync. I should like every 100 frames make a, a number or a mark. And then I ran into Joe Dante who's a, a filmmaker I'd been working for as a screenwriter in L.A. And he said, so who's edge coding your, your film? And I said, there's somebody who does that. You know, I was so excited that I didn't have to do it for thousands and thousands of feet of film. So those kind of technical things. When I went into my sound mix – it was a 16-millimeter film. I had done charts for my whopping five tracks of sound um, with the footages, which is what the um, sound mixer goes by. But I'd done them in 16-millimeter footages. And they said, oh, no, you have to convert them to 35-millimeter footages. And there was this little plastic wheel that did a conversion. And so the entire sound mix, I was like four cuts ahead of you know, the sound mixer writing, scribbling these things onto things. That would have been nice to know. So mostly te- technical things that, that would have just saved me a little sorus. Well, and, and now your life is so much easier. How do you know this? Yeah, things? you know, it, it's interesting. I think uh, probably the Coen brothers and I were the last people on the East Coast to go to um, digital editing. And some of it, in my case, was um, – it just got impossible to rent the equipment anymore because people weren't keeping it up as more and more people started cutting digitally. And I learned it in about half a day and it's great. You know, it's fun. It's like a little video game and it probably saves me an hour a day just changing reels. So there are things that have actually literally gotten easier um, because of technology. And some things, you know, the choice making that you do is pretty much the same as it always was. Uh, let's listen to another piece of music it's about that time again. This is music from your film Mate One. We're going to listen to Fire in the Hole, sung by Hazel Dickens, as you said. So first of all, who's Hazel Dickens? Hazel Dickens was a, from West Virginia, incredible mountain singer. She, um, I think it was Baltimore, she moved to, to uh, work in a factory and uh, a bunch of local folk singers uh, headed by Petty, Peggy Seeger at, um, were told, oh, Hazel's got some room in her apartment. You can come sing at her house. And then one day they said, so Hazel, do you know any songs? And then they were treated to the real thing, somebody who who, who really you know could have been on an Alan Lomax record. Incredibly soulful singer. Really just a cool person. And she, I had heard her singing in um, – Barbara Koppel's documentary, Harlan County. And then I, I kind of got into her music. And so there were a couple songs of hers when through the years we tried and failed to raise the money for Mate Wan that just for uh, like a pep rally, I would put her songs on, you know, and I said, OK, I've got to get a movie where I can put these songs in and maybe get this woman to sing there. So did you think of the music for this movie before you thought of the topic for the movie? Well, partly because, really? you know, b- because partly what you think of is when you think of a movie is you don't just think of a story or lines or characters. You think of what's it going to look like and what's it going to sound like. And knowing this music and, and getting deeper into it, I had an idea of, OK, well, this is great. There's a rhythm to this music. Um, there's a feeling to this music, and this music is kind of emotionally telling me about some of the things I'm writing about. You can tell them in the country, tell them in the town. The miners down in Mingo laid their shovels down. We won't pull another pillow out another time or lift another finger till the union we have won. Stand up, boys, let the bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. There's fire in her hearts and fire in her soul, but there ain't gonna be no fire in the hole.
Well, Daddy died a minor, Grandpa, he did too. I'll bet this coal will kill me for my working days. Fire in the Hole, sung by Hazel Dickens from the soundtrack to the movie Mate One, a film by our guest today, John Sayles. You're listening to WFIU's Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. So again, this is music by Mason Daring, and you have a number of actors throughout your career that you work with over and over mm-hmm. again in projects. We were talking about this before, um, about film school and how you might meet people that you then work with for the rest of your career. Did you work with these people in the very beginning and then just realize that you guys clicked? Yeah, I, I got lucky. I, I started um, doing theater my senior year in college. I liked it and then uh, – graduated and started working in hospitals and I got a call uh, one day from uh, Gordon Clapp who's an actor who's been in a bunch of our movies and was on uh, uh, Hill Street Blues for years playing Metavoy who um, had directed me in one of those productions of Of Mice and Men in college and he said, well, another actor is a friend of ours that just fell out. We need somebody to come up to this Summerstock Theater in New Hampshire and play the Indian in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And uh, I was free. I was unemployed. I think that's the same as being free. And uh, so I went up and there I I, I kind of met uh, David Strathairn who had gone to the same college as I had but had graduated before me and I didn't really know. I'd seen him on stage but didn't know. Um, and a couple other actors who were in that company. And they became the kind of core of the actors who were in Sakaka 7 and many of them who continued – acting have been in in other films of mine. So some of it was really just kind of knowing these guys and how they worked and us doing this thing for the first time together, you know, being in a feature film, directing a feature film, you know, kind of exploring this thing together with no pressure. Yeah, it was just my money out of my pocket. We didn't have a studio breathing down our neck. We just worked it out. Um, and I just got lucky and then I worked with some really, really good actors and then could, you know, kind of later call on them and they later got famous. Chris Cooper, who's the lead in Mate One, that was his first film performance, you know, is one of the other advantages of, um, you know, making independent movies is I don't think you could make a studio movie and, and have a male lead, you know, over 10 years old who hadn't been in a movie before. You know, and we saw dozens and dozens of actors, some of them much better known at the time. And at the end of the day, it was just, okay, Chris Cooper is the guy who's, who should play this. Gosh, can you remember back to his audition and just what stuck out about him? Yeah, it was interesting. He, he had the disadvantage of uh, being the first of 15 to 20 actors we saw on the day. Uh, he'd been uh, recommended actually by Nancy Savoka, who's now a filmmaker herself, who uh, he had been in her um, – student movie at NYU and she was working as our production office coordinator. She said, oh, you got to see this guy. So we put him in the beginning of the day and it just – there's a speech in Mate One and he did it and it was like, OK, I'm, I'm in the room. And then a lot of other people came in and it really is a disadvantage if you're the first person in the day and your work isn't known. And we were leaning toward him and then the money for the movie fell apart and didn't come back together for another three years. And then once again, we said, who was that guy? He still hadn't been in a movie. Who was that guy that came in the first thing? We've got to get him back. And so Chris was once again the first guy who came in. Our only reservation was, I wonder if he can smile. <laughs> you know, and he was a very serious guy and a very serious actor. Yeah, I just wasn't sure. And then I looked through the script and I said, he only has to smile like once in the whole picture. I bet I can get that out of him if, if, if it's hard for him. And he was fine. If the situation demanded that the character smile, he was he's, he's pretty easy to make him smile. But it was the feeling of subtext. And, and you know, it's a fancy kind of acting word. But basically for me, it means there's something else going on underneath that's a great thing for a movie where you're going to be writing close up and any indicative acting, anything big is going to really look way too broad. But you just get a feeling of, oh, there's something more going on here. You know, when's the next shoe going to drop with this guy? 
you know and and some actors it, it's just it, it's not even specific it's just a feeling of oh you know there's a volcano under there and it's going to come out you know other actors it might be some kind of mordant humor that's about to come out and you're waiting for it to come out but it's it, it creates a tension in a performance um, that really often serves the character very well and serves the moment very well. The movie in your catalog that people, a lot of people have seen, mm-hmm. a lot of critical acclaim for Lone Star. Thinking about all the movies that you made, is that the movie you think and you would want to have the critical acclaim and you would want to have the biggest audience? You know, I'm afraid I don't really pay much attention to that. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of in the pits. I write movies for a living. Uh, I write three or four movies for other people a year. You know, every two years or so I get to make a movie and that's so involving. By the time a movie comes out, I've moved on to so many other things that I do the publicity part of it and it's a job. It's an acting job. I don't read reviews. I stopped reading reviews before I even started making movies back when I was a novelist. So it's something you don't have any control over. So why worry about it? I can make a film better until I'm done with the picture timing, which is when you say darker, lighter, bluer, redder, whatever. That's the last process that I have anything, any control of. And, you know, it's like the Walenda, uh, Papa Walenda said, you know, I'm alive when I'm on the wire. The rest is waiting. Well, you know, I'm kind of engaged when I'm writing or directing a movie and the rest is advertising. You know, I, I just wasn't – I was never uh, academic as, as far as movies were concerned. They either grabbed me or they didn't and that's also dependent on age. So, um, you know, or the mood you're in when you walk in. You know, so I, I there's movies that I really liked when I was a kid that I can't watch now and movies that I just wasn't interested in as a kid that I've gone back and seen. So, wow, that's a good movie. Um, you know, so so even your own reaction to things changes Let's listen to another piece of music here. This is music by Bruce Springsteen. I'm so excited to play this. I'm on fire is what we're going to listen to because you directed the music video mm-hmm. for that. So first of all, how did you get that gig? Uh, that kind of evolved. For the movie Baby, It's You, I just felt like the subject matter of the movie, these kind of working class kids in Trenton, you know, New Jersey in 1966 going through all this stuff. I just kept running across scenes of, well, that's like a Bruce Springsteen song. I know which Bruce Springsteen song that's like because Bruce had really kind of chronicled that so well in his work. And I had this idea of what if the songs coming out of the jukeboxes and at the proms and the car radios are all songs from the period, 65, 66, which is a very rich era for songs. But the ones that are just on the track are more like the lifeblood of the picture and they don't have to be from the era who better than Bruce Springsteen. Um, so we, we we asked permission. I didn't meet um, Bruce Springsteen at the time but uh, we asked permission and uh, through John Landau, his manager, got permission. And the way we said is, OK, look, we're going to put these things in and if you hate the movie or hate the way they're used – We'll take them out. So you don't have to commit until you see the movie. And they like the movie fine and, and were very generous with us with the with the rights to the songs. So that established a connection. Uh, then Maggie Renzi, who I live with, who's produced a lot of my movies, her sister made a dance video and uh, used some Bruce Springsteen songs because it was for PBS and they, they can use anything they want. And through that, we actually got to meet with, with Bruce Springsteen, and then when uh, he was ready to to start to be in his videos, rather than just you know having something that that didn't have him in it, we got a call. He had already done the Dancing in the Dark one with Brian De Palma, and he wanted to do um, Born in the USA, you know, um, as a video. So we ended up doing. Born in the USA, I'm on Fire, and Glory Days, which were really fun. It's the, really the only time that I've worked as a director for hire in that they, the story was already there in Bruce's song. Bruce had, had some very specific ideas about what, what the story of the video might be. And it was just basically my, I, I, you know, my job to capture that. The budgets weren't lavish, but they were a lot more than I was used to um, spending on three and a half to four minutes of song. Yeah, well, that's the biggest thing. Talk about how your process is different for 
a four-minute product as opposed to a 90 to 120-minute product? Well, the main thing is rhythm. A feature film is going to change rhythm sometimes, and you have to think about the whole, but each section may have a rhythm. Uh, There may be a, a place where you want to speed things up or slow things down. You can do that with a montage. Uh, you can do that with cutting. You can do that after the fact of the shooting. So you can, you can adjust the, the, the rhythm of the thing, but you've got to think about a two-hour movie. Whereas with um, a rock video, you've got the song. You've got the rhythm um, of the music. And, you know, there's, there's two ways to work it. Is sometimes you choose the song first and you cut to it. And sometimes you cut something and try to find a song that fits it and then maybe make a few adjustments. So one of the nice things about a rock video is you've got the rhythm, the musical rhythm of the thing. Now you have to find images that go with it or storytelling that go with it. And it's it's fun to cut that way because half of your job has already been done for you. And in the case of those stories um, that, that Bruce Springsteen had written, you know, so many of his, his stories are little movies. But those images are already – started for you. So really, that, as I say, that was the only time I really felt like a director for hire who's there to bring out something that's already there. by the boss, Bruce Springsteen, I'm on Fire. That music video uh, was directed by our guest today here on Profiles, John Sales. The thing that's sticking with me throughout this entire conversation with you today is that you are knowledgeable about music. And I'm just wondering if you, if you missed your calling. You know, I have no singing talent. I sing alone in the car. Um, if I'm not alone in the car, I'm soon alone in the car when I sing. I uh, I really like music. Uh, I can't read it. I don't think I have a especially sophisticated taste in music, but I have really strong emotional taste in music. So there are songs that I didn't understand the lyrics to for 25 years because I had a cheap transistor radio. And, uh, had, you know, if you asked me to sing them, I would have sung them with the wrong lyrics for years. And then when I learned the, the real lyrics, I said, oh, geez, that's pretty – that's even better than my version. <laughs> I have a strong reaction to it. I mean, being here on this campus, I mean, what I always associated this place with is Hoagie Carmichael. After Honey Dripper, uh, I wrote uh, – treatment for a miniseries for Charles Dutton about uh, Louis Armstrong. And uh, Hoagie Carmichael weaves in and out of that story. He was, you know, one of the the important bridges between that basically African-American music to get out into the white community. And an original kind of thinker in his own right. And one of Louis Armstrong's favorite um, co-conspirators whenever they appear in the same kind of place. You know, they, they often would play together and had a a kind of very similar sense of fun as performers. You know, it's, it is incredible to me, you know, people ask the difference between writing fiction and making a movie. And I, I often say that in fiction, I can induce a, a reader to feel a lot of things, but it all has to go through their head first. They have to read it, think about it, digest it, and then, then whatever they're going to feel. In a movie, um, you've got this visceral thing going on. That's just about the time of it, the cutting of it, the sound, the music. So that you, part of your relationship to the movie is just visceral. It's one of the reasons why there's some movies that, honestly, you shouldn't see on your computer. You know, you should go to a big theater with a great sound system with, a, with an audience, and that's the way to see that particular movie. And the same thing with music. I find that, you know, I can't take music apart intellectually very easily, but I... 
have a really strong visceral reaction to it. Um, I don't think I've ever been wrong about a hit song when I hear it. I should have been an A&R guy. You know, I hear something on the radio and I say, oh, that's going to be a monster. Now, it might already be and I just hadn't heard it yet. But um, I'm the guy they're aiming those hooks at. There are occasionally things that um, I don't like that kind of I like later, but they aren't those ones that are immediate big hits. Um, so I think that that just feel for it is about rhythm, is about emotion, um, and is about when a song really works, when a pop song really works, is about that combination of the production. You know, it's not all just the singer, you know, or the players. The production, the players, the piece itself, the lyrics maybe, you know, and it may even be just that the lyrics are perfectly redundant and simple for that particular song, um, but they all come together. And, you know, even the best of of musicians, you know, of, of, you know, rock and rollers or any other thing, you listen to a whole bunch of albums, and most of the stuff is they're trying for that and they don't quite make it, you know, but they hit it, you know, enough times that you say, okay, that's somebody I'm going to remember. One last question for you, and uh, then you're on your way out of here. You said that once you're done with a movie, you put it out of your brain, and the people who attend it, how much money it makes, the acclaim it gets, that's that's none of your control, and you're already on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. So Amigo is your new movie, but presumably you've already started thinking about your next project. So really quickly, just what is that? You know, I don't know what it is. You know, I'd have to raise money for it, and that's almost impossible right now. And uh, since we used our own money to make Amigo, we don't have any left. Um, so I'm writing screenplays for other people, which is a good job when I can get it. I've written a screenplay about the Rosenberg spy case. Um, I got to meet the Mirapol brothers, who are the sons of uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, and they've been wanting a feature made about that for a long time. Uh, there's a novel called Christ in Concrete, which came out in the 30s uh, by Pietro Di Donato, which is like the great American immigrant novel um, that I'd like to to adapt. I'm working on a screenplay set in uh, Von Diemen's Land, which later became Tasmania in the 1820s during the penal colony years. And then I've got some old screenplays that if anybody wants to send me 40 to $60 million, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of freeze-dried movies, just add money. Okay, so we'll look forward to whatever project happens to be next for you. Thanks. John Sayles is an independent American filmmaker. He's also an author. He's an actor. And we'll call you a lyricist. How about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. A lyricist. I'll accept that. Well, thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Annie Corrigan. This is WFIU's Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.